In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. Last week, due to some unforeseen circumstances, we were unable to bring you Brexit Republic, so we're catching up in the first part of this week. And what a week of Brexit it is. The EU is poised to agree to extend the grace period for chilled meats entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain, with the EU's Mara Shevchevich bringing his message to the Northern Ireland executive. We'll hear from Simon Coveney and Brandon Lewis on the protocol after they met at the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference in Dublin on Thursday, and from Geoffrey Donaldson after he emerged as the solitary candidate to be the new leader of the DUP. And also this week, the High Court in Belfast is due to give its verdict on the legal challenge taken by leading unionists and Brexiteers, claiming the protocol is contrary to Article 6 of the 1801 Act of Union and the Good Friday Agreement. This week also sees the deadline for EU citizens living in the UK to apply for settled status under the British government's EU Settled Status Scheme. And first, Tony, let's look at that issue because despite the UK government's promise that EU citizens living in the UK before December 31st, 2020 would be valued members of society and the scramble to get people registered so they won't face any legal difficulties or even deportation, there are still serious concerns that thousands of people will not have registered on time. That's right, Colin. So we'll recall that how you treat EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU was was a key part of the withdrawal agreement uh, up there with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the financial settlement. It was a very sensitive issue for both sides. Uh, but eventually they, they came to an agreement that has largely been pretty much successful with some complaints here and there on both sides. However, the UK government... Uh, rather than telling EU citizens who were living in the UK before Brexit Day happened on the 1st of January this year, uh, rather than telling them that they could simply roll over their status uh, and be legally resident in the UK, they had to apply for uh, uh, something called uh, EU Settled Status. There was an EU Settled Status scheme. And uh, once you applied for that, if you were living in the UK for five years or more, then you would apply and get that. If you were living in the UK for less than five years, then you could apply for what was called pre-settled status uh, and then uh, hopefully regularise your status in due course. Uh, So on on the one hand, this has been a big success because initially the estimates were around 3.4 million people But in the event, 5.6 million people uh, actually registered for the scheme. But a lot of people still haven't registered. And there are now major concerns that uh, people will fall through the cracks for various reasons and that they won't uh, meet the deadline, which is Wednesday of this week. Uh, Tomorrow we're recording this on Tuesday uh, and that they could find themselves in legal difficulty or that landlords or employers might suffer a chilling effect if they're not sure of the status of their employees or their tenants. Right. So I've been speaking to Olivia Vicol, who is a Romanian uh, who's been living in the UK for quite a few years, and she runs the Work Rights Centre. Uh, and she has been uh, gathering a lot of material uh, and trying to lobby and advocate for those EU citizens living in the UK who may fall foul of the deadline and could find themselves in trouble. And here's what she's been telling me. Well, I'm delighted now to be talking to Olivia Vicol, who is the chief executive of the Work Rights Centre and also holds a postdoctoral affiliate position at the University of Oxford School of Anthropology. And very welcome, first of all, Olivia, to Brexit Republic podcast. Can you tell us, first of all, about the Work Rights Centre? What do you do there? Absolutely. The Work Rights Centre is a registered charity. 
It was founded in 2016 by migrants and for migrants. We have a very multilingual team. Primarily, we were founded because we want to address the issue of employment exploitation, things like people not being paid for their work or working for 14 hours on end. However, ever since Brexit, we also realized that um, it's now extremely important for European nationals to also secure the right to reside in the UK, and there cannot be any, any good work and employment rights without status under the EU settlement scheme. So ever since, we expanded our remit to also include USS advice. Obviously, the, the key event that's coming up is the, the deadline for people to register for the EU settlement scheme. Before we get into the deadline issue, can you just ex- explain to us what the EU settlement scheme is exactly? Absolutely. So the EU settlement scheme was introduced by the British government to protect the rights of EEA nationals and their family members after freedom of movement ends. Now, freedom of movement ended officially when the UK left the European Union. That was at the end of that transitional period, um, which is on the 31st of December 2020. Ever since, people have been given another six months to apply for the EUSS to basically secure their right to live, to work in the UK, and in some cases to also claim benefits. Okay, now obviously the rights of citizens on both sides were a very key part of the withdrawal agreement and it was up there alongside the Irish question as an issue that had to be agreed at a certain stage along the negotiation path of the withdrawal agreement. Um, But it is a very sensitive and politically charged issue as well. The British government have always said that they cherish EU citizens living in their country, they'll protect their rights. But is that the case? Has it been handled well, do you think? Are, are people's rights going to be protected under this EU settlement scheme? Mm. In some cases they will, in others they won't, and we'll take them one by one. Um, before I start that, I do want to say that I acknowledge the momentousness of this task. I think it's fair to say that exiting the European Union and ending freedom of movement is a hugely complex administrative, legal and psychological task. But And yes, many people have applied and have secured their status, but there are also um, many issues with it. I think the first one was the fact that this was a digital-only application, and this was effectively a huge exercise. It was a test in digital literacy for millions of of applicants to the EUSS. We've seen in practice at the Work Rights Centre how this trips people. You know, many of the people we assist never even had an email address because they didn't need it to. You know, they worked in, in... Um, construction or in cleaning in sectors where they do a very good job, but suddenly they now also had to get used to these digital processes. So um, a lot of them struggle to apply. Then there are also issues with proving residence, even though in theory um, the UK was generous in in saying, well, you can qualify for EUSS, even if you didn't work, you just had to show your presence in the country. In practice, for people who worked informally, um, for people who sublet informally without the contract, proving their presence in the UK was much harder. So there are really issues at, um, at the application stage of things. Um, but right now, I think what we're also seeing is um, the huge backlog and the fact that, well, in theory, people should be able to exercise their rights to, to work and to claim benefits while the Home Office is considering their application. But in practice... We're seeing employers run out of patience and basically reject people from employment or even penalize existing employees, even though through no fault of their own, the Home Office is still judging their application. So, this, so, that's so, another so employ, really employers are reluctant to keep people on or employ people if there's any question yeah. mark over their, their status. That's exactly right. And I think it's very interesting to observe here that the Home Office is telling employers, you don't have to conduct these right to work checks yet. And it's also telling employers, we will be still receiving late applications under some conditions. But after years of a hostile environment, I think employers are basically scared and they're so afraid of falling foul of the home office that they're now reluctant to to engage a new national or family member if there's any shadow of uncertainty over their status. Okay, now, according to some of the figures we've seen, uh, something like 5.6 million applications for EU settled state settlement status has been have been made um, and this is obviously a very big number because the estimate for the number of EU nationals living in the UK was much less 3.4 million 
but of course free movement of people being what it is it might be hard to get a precise figure as to how many EU nationals are living in the UK at any one time do we know how many people still haven't formally applied for EU settled status given that the deadline for applications is going to be next week mm. Unfortunately, we really don't, and there's no reliable way of measuring that. On one hand, because COVID has really severely limited um, our statistical abilities, basically. We can't know how many people are eligible. Um, and on the other hand, also because the Home Office reports number of applications rather than um, number of individuals who applied. So it's it's frustrating, but we can't know how many people will be left out. But what we what we, you know, what is common sense to assume is that given how in no other government scheme um, was there a 100% enrollment, people will be falling through the cracks even now. And, you know, we, we, we're still doing applications for people a few days before the deadline. Um, usually for people who've struggled with expired IDs um, and people who forgot that even though they as adults have status under the USS, they also have to register their children. So there's a lot of confusion still about this. And I, unfortunately, I have no doubt that a significant number of people will be left out. OK, but the government has said that they will still look at applications after the deadline if people can show that they've made reasonable efforts or if there are some unforeseen circumstances which have militated against mm -hmm. them. That's right. Get, getting the deadline, or getting to the deadline on time. I mean, do you trust those assurances? They're not as good as extending the deadline full stop. I'm going to say that. Um, I think, you know, you, you have to take the Home Office's word um, at face value. I, I, But at the same time, the conditions under which late applications will be accepted are quite restrictive. So... Um, it's if an, if, it's an, if an applicant can demonstrate that they were incapacitated by illness, for instance, or because they were a victim of abuse or a victim of modern day slavery. But again, this is a really big bureaucratic exercise. Um, and without a doubt, every application will be a complex application. So the chances of it failing will be much higher, not necessarily because the Home Office has the intention to now reject everyone, but also because people will find it so much harder to apply. Okay, now, as I understand it, the, the those who qualify for EU settled status, uh, they should have five years residency, is that right? And those who don't have five years residency or who have less than five years residency in the UK, they only get pre-settled status, is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, and then they have to apply for settled status after they've they've been in the UK for five years. Yes, that's also correct. So that that transition from pre-settled to settled isn't automatic. They have to make the effort to apply again. And a lot of people have questions about um, whether they even met the continuity of residence because of COVID and because having to go back home and and spend time with family and so on. The Home Office has just updated guidance on on absences and it's made them um, much more generous than before but unfortunately people won't know whether they can actually transition to settled status until they come to make that application so so there's a question mark there okay and is is there a difference between the rights that you enjoy if you are in pre-settled status and those that you would enjoy if you have proper settled status i'm thinking of an opinion at the European Court of Justice on Thursday, mm -hmm. which held that a Dutch-Croatian national, a woman who was living in Northern Ireland who had her application for universal credit refused by, uh, the, I think, the Department for Communities in Northern Ireland um, because she only had pre-settled status uh, and the European Court of Justice Advocate General delivered an opinion that that was discrimination on the grounds of grounds of nationality because British uh, people obviously in the system would not have faced that kind of treatment. How significant do you mm -hmm. think that uh, opinion was? And I suppose it's important to point out that the reason this has gone to the European Court of Justice is because the facts uh, that are pertaining to this case 
occurred before the end of the transition period. That's right. I'm, I'm really glad you covered that, actually. And I think it gives us ground for cautious optimism. But I'm, I'm going to stop there because ultimately, until the Supreme Court, well, until we get a judgment from the um, European Court of Justice and until we get a judgment from the Supreme Court in the UK, it's likely that nothing will change and that people with pre-settled status will have fewer rights to access benefits in the UK um, than those with settled status. So we still have a few months of, of uncertainty. Um, but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's grounds for cautious optimism. Okay, I think what's, I what's interesting, it's, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say it's, it's probably important to, to point out that the European Court of Justice does still have a role to play in the question of the rights and entitlements of EU citizens in the UK and, of course, UK citizens in the EU as well. I mean, is that a reassurance or does that run out at a certain point? I don't think I can comment on that. I think it's 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 reassuring in the sense that the 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 case um, in question with the Dutch Croatian national from Northern Ireland that mirrors another case, um, I think, of, of a Romanian national who's being heard in the UK courts in December. And I think that case has now been brought to the Supreme Court in the UK, which is waiting for judgment from the ECJ because they're so parallel. Um, so yeah, other, other than saying I'm vaguely encouraged by this, I, I can't comment further. I mean, just given the work that you do and your experience as a Romanian national working and studying as well in the UK, what kind of picture can you tell or, or do you see since the beginning of this year when Brexit fully took effect? Because we hear a lot of reporting about certain economic sectors in the UK suddenly not being able to find labour uh, in the hospitality mm -hmm. sector, in the agriculture sector, construction and so on. Is that anecdotal picture something that you would also see in, in mm -hmm. your line of work? I think given that our line of work is focused so much on frontline work, you know, working with, with people, I, I think this period of uncertainty is, is extremely stressful. Uncertainty is a psychologically tormenting state to be in. And I think it, it's really interesting to see how some of the um, issues that people experience, such as not being able to find work because they don't have the right status or um, being asked to take unpaid leave by their employers while their status is being judged. These issues aren't so much about their rights in the withdrawal agreement and the EU settlement scheme, but they're also about the ways in which this whole army of civil society organizations, like employers and landlords, this whole army of civil society organizations are basically exercising, conducting immigration controls in the everyday. This is what the hostile environment looks like. It's basically a delegation of immigration checks from borders to the level of everyday civil society. Now, this delegation doesn't happen perfectly. Sometimes employers, as I just mentioned earlier, have their own prejudices or fears, and they sometimes miss out on the process and they end up basically amplifying the exclusions um, that you know the, the law would otherwise um, tolerate. So I think this is a really interesting story to see how how immigration controls are basically made worse at everyday level just because people don't understand the, the momentousness of the USS and, and their rights and obligations under the scheme. Okay, that's very interesting. And and ultimately, I mean, do you do you feel in general that 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 the environment in the UK has become a bit more hostile since Brexit took effect, um, or or is that more in the sphere of officialdom and this delegation, as you described it, that so mm. many different stakeholders have to try and figure out, you know, who's legal, who who might not be legal, and so on. I think the short answer is yes, the environment has become a bit more hostile, but there's many reasons for that. On, on one hand, there have been reports of increases in hate crime, um, and that's extremely upsetting to, to hear and to read about. But on the other hand, this hostility doesn't necessarily happen because um, employers or the DWP are, are on a crusade to exclude the nationals. Um, it's also a kind of bureaucratic hostility that just happens from people's various interpretations of their right, of their duty to check immigration status. So it's that duty to, you know, that 
that process of devolving immigration controls from the Home Office to the whole of civil society, that's creating all these frictions, all these interactions where suddenly, you know, someone you'd get on with very well, like your employer or your landlord, they're suddenly asking to see your papers. So you can imagine what that does to a human relationship. Well, thank you very much, Olivia Vicol, for joining us on Brexit Republic. Thanks so much for your, your illumination on the tricky area of EU citizens' rights in the UK as we approach the deadline for the EU settlement scheme. So thanks again for joining us on Brexit Republic. Thank you, Tony. Pleasure. And that was Olivia Vicol, CEO of the Work Rights Centre. Tony, I just, I suppose it's worth noting, this doesn't apply to Irish citizens under the special arrangements we have under the common travel area and historic our historic relationship with the UK. That's right. Because of the common travel area, Irish citizens have the right to live and work and claim social benefits and pension rights in the UK and vice versa, UK citizens living in Ireland uh, have always enjoyed those same rights. So that's a particular conversation that the Irish government uh, were not really part of. Uh, So, yeah, important to to stress that. All right. Tony, I I have to say the following subject is something that over time I've become rather queasy about, all the talk of chilled meats and mints and sausages. At least they're chilled. That's... That's the first thing to observe. Indeed. Rather than at room temperature. So let's go back and dial it back to last week, which, as you said at the outset, we missed due to some unforeseen circumstances, not unrelated to chilled meats themselves in the form of the common agricultural policy, which we had to throw all shoulders to the wheel to cover last Friday. The extension to the grace period has been under discussion for quite some time. We're closer to that now, but maybe you can walk us through the evolution of it over the past Mm. while. Well, first of all, the reason why chilled meats are an issue is that the EU effectively bans unfrozen chilled meats entering the EU from a third country. So these include typically sausages, uh, mince, pies, stuff that has been a little bit processed, chicken nuggets. And and the reason for this uh, is that you know, such products are just a bit harder to trace uh, because they are made up of lots of different sources, shall we say. Don't look too closely at how sausages are made, um, as someone famously once said. Um, And that's why they're generally banned from entering the EU. Now, because Northern Ireland is in the single market for goods, then Northern Ireland will be applying the EU's food safety and animal health um, standards and regulations. So that would mean on paper that those goods would not be able to enter Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Now, both sides agreed that there would be a grace period for this back in December. And that grace period runs out on the 1st of July, which is this week. And in order to facilitate this grace period, they they did a kind of a, quite a quirky legal manoeuvre because the protocol came into effect on the 1st of December, it's part of an international legally binding treaty. If you had to suddenly not apply part of that uh, treaty, then that's effectively breaking the law. Uh, and so the way they managed this back in December was that the UK would issue a unilateral declaration saying that it, it would continue to... Um, sell these kinds of chilled meats into Northern Ireland from Great Britain uh, according to some conditions. They would have to be labelled in a certain way. There would have to be a special channel at Larne and Belfast to handle these meats coming in. Uh, And they would abide by the EU's food safety and animal health rules for the duration of the grace period. Uh, And the EU then issued a a counter-unilateral declaration simply taking note of the UK's uh, statement. Um, right. So, so that was sort of seen as, as as a way to kind of wave this through, to let it happen without the EU having to go in and literally change an international treaty. So does that mean uh, the UK's unilateral declaration that it wasn't going to implement or that it was going to extend the grace periods was possibly a little less unilateral or a little less surprising than we may have thought heretofore. There was an element of choreography or behind-the-scenes knowledge of this. Well, well, there, there are two different unilateral issues here. One is the, the, the unilateral declaration which the UK issued, uh, and that was in 
I think it was the 8th, 8th of January of this year. Um, I mean, it's online. You can see this, um, and it's it's all spelled out. It spells out the kinds of meats which are which are covered by this unilateral declaration, and and so therefore that's how the grace period works. The other unilateral thing is when the UK in March decided it was going to unilaterally extend a grace period, uh, and that grace period related to how other food products are brought into Northern Ireland. Now, now typically. Food entering the EU needs an export health certificate if it is of animal origin or certain plants um, and, and plant products need to have uh, an export health certificate. So that is uh, an expensive and cumbersome thing to have to, to have for huge volumes, huge consignments of food entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain for supermarkets. So that was a unilat- that again, that was a declaration that was made by the UK back in December. The EU agreed to it. But that was a three-month declaration, uh, sorry, a three-month grace period. And then the UK extended that grace period by by itself on its own, um, which is kind of, yeah, they did it unilaterally, but they didn't do it in agreement. (laughs) So, I mean, the first first grace period was unilaterally declared, but it was declared as part of a a deal that that had been reached between Michael Gove, um, the the former cabinet minister, Minister, Cabinet Office Minister, and Mara Shevchevich, his opposite number at EU level. Right. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the word unilateral does appear in these two ways of looking at it, but they're, they're kind of two different things, really. Okay, right. I, I suppose that the, for an Irish audience, the last time taking note was a matter of relevance to us was the repayment of, I think, of the Anglo bond when the, That's right. the uh, yeah. extension was being pushed out. It the was noted, but not right? endorsed. Would that be... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's just a bit of a workaround. Now, what's what's happened this time around is that first of all, politically and very importantly, the UK hasn't simply ruled out the extension themselves and said, by the way, we're going to extend this grace period for chilled meats until September. They they have asked for the uh, EU to agree to this extension, and this obviously follows the G7 and all the pressure that the UK was under, as we've discussed on previous podcasts. Uh, and so this was seen as you know, an important step of, with the UK being less confrontational, uh, asking for the protocol, uh, sorry, asking for the, the grace period to be extended. Uh, and obviously the EU had to agree to that. And so there has been a, a process in place. The European Commission has been talking to member states saying, we should do this. Mara Shevchevich has briefed EU ambassadors to say, look, this is important. We need to do this quickly and this will help calm the situation as the marching season gets underway. Uh, and But there, there are two, I think, uh, important um, qualifying aspects to, to this latest development. One is that Mara Shevchevich was able to tell member states that actually in the period since the 1st of January, there is evidence that supermarkets in Northern Ireland have been sourcing these kinds of products locally in Northern Ireland or from the South. So there has been a a fall off in this kind of trade from GB. So in other words, he's saying, look, adaptation is happening. Uh, Even though there's been a grace period, traders are already adapting and changing their supply chains. So in other words, that means the the system, the protocol is working. These products can't come into the EU from from GB because it's a third country, but supermarkets can be supplied with the same products. They're just just made in Northern Ireland or in the Republic of Ireland. Um, So that was one way for Mara Shevchevich to say to member states, look, this is worth doing because in any event, the, the actual process is working. Now, interestingly, if you go back to the unilateral declaration that the UK made back in December, it acknowledged that this grace period for six months was partly to help traders adapt their supply chains. So, you know, implicit in that declaration, the UK was acknowledging that trade from GB in these kinds of products would start to taper off in favour of trade uh, traders sourcing these materials and products from Northern Ireland itself uh, or from the South. The other difference this time around is that member states were quite unhappy uh, at that workaround last December where the Commission simply 
allowed the UK to make a declaration and the, and the Commission then acknowledged it. This time around, member states are saying, no, no, this has to be a proper uh, decision by member states. It's called, it's called a council decision uh, because they were arguing that under 218 of the EU treaties, 218 uh, paragraph 9, uh, any change to an international treaty has to be recommended by the Commission and made into a formal Commission decision so that member states are giving their consent uh, to this move. So, I mean, you know, we've we've heard a lot in the, the narrative from the UK that, oh, this is something the EU should do, they should be more flexible, they should be more pragmatic, but this is how the EU works. It, it you, you have to have a proposal from the Commission and then member states have to go through it with a fine comb. They draw up a kind of a legal text, which is a council decision, and then that decision is adopted and then it, 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 it then happens, okay? Now, I speak to you on, on Tuesday and, you know, this week there has been a working party. That's the Brexit coordinators from member states. They've been going through this. EU ambassadors have met at co-repair level and they've endorsed this thing as well. And what was due to happen today, Tuesday, was that there would be a written procedure launched. Uh, And that's basically simply an email with the text goes round to all the EU delegations. And if no member state objects to to the final text granting this extension to the grace period, then by 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock on Wednesday, uh, it will be adopted. Um, it's, it's called a silence procedure. And then Mara Shevchevich was due to go up uh, and make this announcement at 4.30 Brussels time on Wednesday with a press conference announcing that the EU had granted this um, this continuation of the grace period. Mm. However, <laughs> a, sli- a slight hitch at the last minute. What, what, I, what I found out today was that a number of member states have been uneasy about allowing this written procedure to go ahead. Would you go so far as to say queasy? Queasy. Good word, yeah, in the context of chilled meats. Queasy and uneasy. And they have said that the written procedure can't actually be launched until they see the UK's unilateral declaration. So, you know, this could be simply a procedure or it could be reflective of the fact that the EU still has trust issues with the UK. We're not sure. But it, it just means that the, the written procedure can't be launched until member states actually see the UK's uh, right. unilateral declaration. It, and and the, and the word is that it, it may not arrive until Wednesday mo- tomorrow morning being Wednesday morning. Is this because there's a sensitivity that whatever language is used in the unilateral declaration, they want to make sure that it won't be couched as the UK wallowing in a political win, I suppose, to use a slightly hyperbolic formula of words. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more to do with um, with, with the nature and, and the sort of the detail of this unilateral declaration. Remember, it, it's from what I gather, it's, it's going to largely repeat the declaration of December uh, in other words, the UK will align with EU food safety rules for the duration of this grace period. All of those chilled meats will be properly labelled so that they can only be sold in Northern Ireland. There'll be a, a special channel at the um, at the port of Larne in Belfast to, to bring these meats in. Um, and also an acknowledgement that this grace period is there to help traders adapt their supply chains. Now, that's that's a very... I suppose, uncomfortable thing for the British government to admit because it, it, it it's, it's further evidence of them buying into the protocol and the idea that um, the protocol is here to stay because they are acknowledging tacitly that the supply chain chains are being adapted. Traders in Northern Ireland are now getting this kind of produce locally in Northern Ireland and from the Republic of Ireland and not GB. Right. And that kind of confirms this idea of the Irish Sea border, if you like, you know, the differential between both sides. And it's also tricky because, you know, people have um, kind of seized upon the sausage idea as an identity issue that, you know, you're somehow less British if you can't buy Cumberland sausages or Melton Mowbray pies or whatever. Mm. So, 
I, my, my guess is, and this is just speculation, is that member states may just simply want to make sure that the UK is repeating that language of December where they acknowledge that supply chains will be changing because of this um, now already. Or, or do they want them to explicitly endorse the conditionality that was being talked about last week, that there would be a period of alignment for the for the period of the extension of the grace period and that there would be alignment between um, SPS rules in the UK and Northern Ireland in order to make sure that the extension of the grace period was consistent with the protection of the single market. Yeah, well, well, well that, th- that conditionality will be in there. I mean, that was in there in December. The UK declared in this unilateral declaration that they would maintain EU food safety and animal health rules, SPS rules, for the duration of the grace period. Now, there is another slight wrinkle in there because the the EU had been working for years on a, a huge body of legis- legislation called the Official Controls legis- uh, Regulation, which governs all of the SPS rules. And it was updated over a quite a long period of time and finally came into force in April of this year. So we talk about dynamic alignment. Those new rules came into effect in April, but obviously the UK, which would have been around when these rules were being negotiated as a member state, but now that they're out, you know, the UK is not updating its rule book to, to coincide with the official controls regulation. So technically speaking, you could argue that, um, you know, by... When I think member states have a three-month uh, lead-in period to adapt this official controls regulation, meaning that the UK would technically be slightly out of step with EU rules in August. Um, but but because the grace period is only until the end of September, then that's just a month where they're sort of technically slightly out of step. Um, but that's just one of these wrinkles that uh, crop up from time to time. Right. Uh, I suppose the the tone leading up to this has been far more measured in, in a number of quarters. Uh, we mentioned at the outset there that uh, Brandon Lewis was in Dublin for the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference in Dublin on Thursday last. And himself and Simon Coveney stood up for a press conference afterwards. And again, as we've heard in recent times, obviously the positions differ, but the tone was conciliatory. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think the fact that the UK government has asked for this extension to the grace period rather than just taking it has certainly improved the atmosphere immeasurably. And I think we can hear now from Simon Coveney and Brandon Lewis at that British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. We have been uh, advocating for more ambition uh, around uh, sanitary and phytosanitary standards, food standards, veterinary standards, and a common approach to that from, from the UK uh, and the EU, uh, which could reduce significantly uh, the number of checks required in, in ports and airports in Northern Ireland on, on product coming in from GB. So, you know, I'd like to give a message to people in Northern Ireland that despite the frustration that, that we've heard, uh, we are trying to work through the issues um, where there are solutions. Uh, but those solutions require partnership between the British government and the EU together. Um, and you know, I think that hopefully this week and into next week, uh, if we can get agreement on the, the chilled meats issue, uh, at least for a temporary extension of that grace period, that can be a catalyst perhaps for improved relationships uh, and uh, the building of, uh, of some trust that can allow the negotiating teams to try to solve some of these other issues. Uh, over the summer months because they need to be solved Uh, and people in Northern Ireland need certainty Um, and uh, I think if we can give them certainty as well as flexibility uh, and as long as we can reassure people that that the protocol uh, can function uh, and can do what it was designed to do uh, which is to minimise disruption but also to protect the integrity of the EU single market um, then I think that would be you know, a significantly important piece of work uh, over the summer. We've, um, we've been very clear, this is an issue for the whole of Northern Ireland. There is undoubtedly a, a, an issue for those in the unionist community who have this sense of identity and feel very strongly about that. We have to understand and respect that. 
The issues, though, the challenges in the protocol, the problems and the outworkings of it affect everybody in Northern Ireland, regardless of their constitutional view. And uh, when we talk to civic society and uh, business leaders, um, regardless of what um, constitutional view they have, they are all saying there are issues with the protocol that need to be corrected. And as I said earlier this week, <clears throat> in its current format, the way that it's working, it just is not sustainable uh, because ultimately it's based on consent in Northern Ireland. So we've got to make sure that we're able to find pragmatic, flexible solutions. We've put forward over a dozen papers to the EU. We're looking forward to them uh, responding to us on those and having a genuine engagement on that. Uh, I agree with Simon. We all need to have some flexibility and pragmatism. Mal Shefovic himself has said that. Uh, we want, we need, I need to see some of that in practice and hopefully we'll see that over the next few days. I think ultimately we all want to be able to find a way through this by agreement, uh, working with our partners in the EU and get a good solution that works for the people of Northern Ireland. So that's what was being said in Dublin last Thursday, Tony, and we know that I suppose the, the position of the Irish government and indeed a number of people who, who are not the DUP in Northern Ireland would say, well, it's important to listen to all sides and there are differing views of the application of the protocol and the, and the effect of the protocol. We'll hear from Geoffrey Donaldson in a minute, who, of course, holds a, a view that is, is not favourable towards the protocol. But Mara Shevchevic decided that he would, in, I think it's fair to say, an unprecedented move, address the Stormont Assembly and try and take questions in order to address some of the concerns that MLAs have. Yeah, so he uh, addressed the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, Executive Committee or the committee that to, to the executive um, on on Monday, and it was you know quite a, a broad ranging uh, testimony by him, and then questions from those who'd be sympathetic to the protocol and those who'd be, who'd be fairly hostile to the protocol. And by and large, he he gave a fairly strong endorsement of the protocol as as the best option to uphold the Good Friday Agreement and avoid a hard border and again repeating ad nauseum, you know, we've heard this over and over again that the, that the EU will be flexible and, and will be pragmatic but they need the UK to give a concrete commitment to implementing the protocol so he's kind of offering um, an incentive for the UK to implement the protocol and in return there will be flexibilities. Now he was saying he couldn't confirm that the chilled meats thing would be done and dusted but he hoped in the next 48 hours that there would be an agreement and of course you know we, we, we can say for, with fair certainty that that will happen. Um, he also talked about um, the EU taking a bold decision and that was referring to the medicines issue, which we've talked about before. And there is uh, certainly a real awareness, I think, at the Commission level and now in member states that the, the there, there can't be anything which undermines the flow of medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland uh, as, as a result of the protocol. Um, so... What, what he hinted at in, in his presentation was that the EU would be prepared to look at legislation to facilitate the continuing flow of medicines from Great Britain, which will be outside the EU and outside the EU's you know, pharmaceutical or, or pharma regulatory sphere, and that medicines produced in the UK would still be able to circulate in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and there is going to be a a review of legislation next year anyway at EU level. So the, the feeling is that in that review of legislation, the, the, the EU will change the rules to facilitate the continued flow of medicines right. um, to, to, to Northern Ireland. But we can, we can hear a flavour now of, of Mara Shevchevich defending the protocol and also defending the whole issue of Article 16. He, you know, he talked again about this event in January. He said Article 16 was not triggered by the Commission. It was simply, in they simply prepared a draft provision which might allow them in future to invoke Article 16 in certain circumstances, but that draft provision was dropped within hours and the, the Commission President um, apologised for that and he's kind of saying that you know people are just deliberately you know fueling the flames uh, against the protocol by constantly referencing what the EU had done with article 16 or not done with article 16 uh, in January but here's a flavor of what he had to say to the uh, Stormont committee and while i cannot uh, today announce the EU's formal agreement 
to the UK government's request. After all the internal contacts I have had, I remain confident that we can find a solution within the next 48 hours that will address both sides' needs and concerns. I hope to be bringing such optimism to Northern Ireland more in the future. We have been uh, gravely concerned at the negative rhetoric about uh, the protocol, which is, after all, an instrument to protect uh, peace and stability and calls to trigger uh, safeguard measures under the protocol if it damages the political, social uh, or economic fabric of life in Northern Ireland. Let's not forget this is the impact of Brexit and the choices made by the UK government, not of the protocol, nor the European Union. Therefore, I want to see the necessary checks reduced to absolute minimum possible. To mention one measure that would address uh, some concerns and could be negotiated uh, uh, very quickly, uh, a so-called Swiss-style veterinary agreement. The UK uh, continuing to apply EU SPS rules would do away with the vast majority of the checks uh, in the Irish Sea and would not require checks um, elsewhere, say in Northern Ireland, uh, including for travels with pets, for example. The New Zealand, uh, uh, the New Zealand uh, style equivalents, for example, wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm going to pass now to uh, Diane Dodds for some questioning. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Mr. Vice President, um, for uh, taking the time to engage with us today. I think it is hugely, hugely uh, important that you hear uh, from the members of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, you have, um, I have a number of questions that I would uh, like uh, to uh, seek some um, answers from you today. But first of all, maybe just a statement. And you talk about article, uh, the first article. Um, under uh, the new arrangements with the United Kingdom and that these do not undermine the constitutional uh, impact on Northern Ireland. It is actually quite staggering that in a recent court case um, on the impact of the protocol that our own government actually uh, argued that uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol impliedly repealed Article 6 of the Act of Union. So the constitutional impact is very real and is very worrying. However, the, the element of this that I do want to um, really focus on and I would like uh, your um, views on is that uh, element of consent. You repeatedly, and indeed in my many years in the European Parliament, I've heard it um, repeated many times uh, that the Commission, the Parliament are all united in your support for the Belfast Agreement. And indeed, you even include it in all of its parts uh, within the text. However, that agreement also includes the principle of consent. And stability in Northern Ireland is best secured when we have consent from all of its people. And here in the Northern Ireland Assembly, that consent means that on these huge issues, consent should be drawn from both communities. Vice President, you must realise that today you are at an assembly in Northern Ireland where no representative, not one, from the unionist community gives consent to the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's, uh not only me, but also Lord Frost stated it very, very clearly um, uh, in uh, Westminster that uh, the protocol in no way violates uh, uh, the, the constitutional order of the, of the UK. And here I have to say uh, that, uh, that uh, we are in a complete agreement uh, uh, on that. And uh, I can also assure you that we have no interest in interfering into the domestic policies or internal uh, debate and we have uh, absolute respect uh, for all communities uh, in uh, Northern Ireland. Therefore, we went uh, to such a length to find uh, the, 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 uh, the accommodation of uh, different interests, which I already described uh, uh, several times uh, uh, this uh, uh, afternoon. And we take very seriously uh, your your concerns and uh, the point you put uh, on the table. Uh, you know uh, very well that uh, Northern Irish Assembly uh, would clearly have a say uh, in 2024 
uh, if to continue uh, with the protocol or not. And in the meantime, as I said, uh, of course, I cannot speak uh, and I, on behalf uh, of the UK, but from, from the side of the EU, I can tell you that there is uh, absolutely extended hand to have these exchanges with uh, North Irish Assembly to really use the joint consultative group for very intense meetings and discussions where we can really inform uh, you what is planning, what is happening, and also listen uh, to, uh, to your concerns. And as I said to you as a, a former member of the European Parliament, I'm sure that you have a lot of contacts in uh, Strasbourg and, and Brussels, and, uh, uh, and I know that it will not be a surprise to you that many of your former colleagues would just love to have more intense uh, direct contacts be it in the form of parliamentary assembly or special subcommittee uh, for uh, for Northern Ireland. So all this we would like to do, and hopefully this uh, communication would help us to, to clarify many of the issues we are discussing today. Well, that was Mara Shevchevic in Stormont. Of course, over the weekend, Jeffrey Donaldson passed through another hoop and becoming uncontested leader of the DUP. I think he still has to be endorsed tomorrow by the party's executive. But... He was addressing the issue of the protocol and he had some strong words for the Irish government. Northern Ireland was given the right under the Act of Union to trade freely with the rest of our own country. And all that we ask is for that right to be restored, that we can trade freely with the rest of the United Kingdom and continue to trade with our neighbours. And there must be a solution to that. We need to find that solution. I don't think we're in the place yet where we uh, have uh, the solutions that we need on the protocol, solutions that will restore Northern Ireland's place fully within the UK internal market. This protocol is doing enormous harm to our economy, uh, to confidence, uh, to political stability, uh, and that's why I believe that we've got to find uh, another way of doing things uh, that doesn't do the harm that the protocol is doing to Northern Ireland. And our economy uh, is being harmed by the fact that we have unnecessary barriers uh, put in place, uh, imposed by the EU. Um, And therefore, we need to find a solution that, of course, respects the integrity of the EU single market, but where the integrity of the UK internal market is also fully respected. So the solution that we need is a solution uh, that means that if you're a business in Northern Ireland uh, looking to purchase goods from a supplier in Great Britain, you can do so without the unnecessary burdens that have been imposed by the protocol. If you are a consumer um, and you want to buy products for your own personal consumption, that you can do so from suppliers in Great Britain without the unnecessary barriers um, that are preventing people at the moment from buying goods that they want to buy from people they've bought them from for years. I want to make clear to the Irish government that their cheerleading for the protocol is simply not acceptable given the harm that it is doing to Northern Ireland. It is dragging our politics backwards. Now, the Irish government uh, and the uh, Irish Prime Minister have made clear that they want to protect the peace process. They want to protect political stability in Northern Ireland. But the Irish government has to step away from being a cheerleader for one part of the community. If the Irish government is genuine about the peace process, is genuine about protecting political stability in Northern Ireland, then they too need to listen to unionist concerns. It's not just London. Dublin also need to understand that if we're going to move forward and have cooperation, then if they are intent on harming our relationship with Great Britain, they cannot expect that it will be business as usual on the North-South relationship because the Belfast Agreement is very clear. The, uh, the three sets of relationships are interlocking and interdependent. If you harm one element, one relationship, you harm all of them. If the Irish government continues to support the imposition of a protocol that harms our relationship with Great Britain, then by uh, implication, it harms the relationship between Dublin and Belfast. Now, I don't want to be in that position, but I am very clear Uh, And I will be saying this clearly to the Irish government. It is not acceptable for them to be on one side of this argument. It is not acceptable for them to simply listen to a nationalist perspective and not to listen to the concerns of unionists. They say they are a guarantor of the agreement. 
But that means guaranteeing the rights of unionists, because that's what the agreement does, as well as nationalists. It means respecting the principle of consent, which they enshrined in their own constitution as a result of the Belfast Agreement. The Northern Ireland Protocol doesn't respect fully the principle of consent. And therefore, we need the Irish government to get back to a place where it respects the right of unionists and the people of Northern Ireland generally to be part of the United Kingdom. Tony, Geoffrey Donaldson is clearly not a fan of the protocol, but an unambiguous scrapping of the protocol is not being called for. There is at least a moderation in the language, albeit slight. Is this a sign of a level of pragmatism? or a recognition of the fact that in the British government he doesn't have an ally in scrapping the protocol, arguing for change, yes, but outright getting rid of it, no. Yeah, I mean, I think people were listening to his words very carefully and trying to divine what direction he was going to go on the protocol. And yeah, I I think he is seasoned and experienced enough to know that if he comes out and just says the protocol has to go full stop, then that will come back to haunt him um, if the protocol doesn't get scrapped. And, and you know, there, there's no indication that the EU is prepared to scrap it. Um, but again, he is drawing attention to how difficult it is for unionists and how there will have to be changes. Now, I mean, I, th- I think the, the, the EU understands this and... I think the changes that the EU is prepared to make and obviously extending the grace period on chill meat is meats is evidence of that. You know, they, they will try and, you know, m- m- choreograph these changes and flexibilities in such a ways as to keep the, the, the kind of protocol bandwagon going, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, over time it just becomes a fact of life for people mm. uh, and that all sides either grudgingly or enthusiastically just come to terms with it. And that's why you hear Mara Shevtovich talking about getting some kind of joint investment conference going for Northern Ireland to showcase the fact that Northern Ireland is still in the EU single market. You know, people would say that's that's a tremendous opportunity for Northern Ireland to attract foreign direct investment as a, a gateway into the single market and into the UK market. Um, you know, that's a tricky one for the UK to say, yes, please, let's do that. Because, of course, that, again, highlights this best of both worlds idea and would remind people that England, Scotland and Wales don't have those benefits because they're out of the single market. So, you know, this is a slightly tricky one for the UK. Um, but, I mean, in, in, in general, it will be very interesting to, to see how Geoffrey Donaldson plays... Uh, his opposition to the protocol and how he pitches his message. Um, I mean, there is a view that the DUP will remain on uh, on manoeuvres, you know, on on a kind of a, a state of, of of high kind of readiness on this issue because sure, the next assembly elections way. are assen- exactly assen- it's, the, it's the best way for them to keep that sort of edge to their base uh, ahead of the assembly elections next year. And of course, you could argue that. It would suit David Frost and the British government uh, for the DUP to do well in those in those elections because, again, that that could potentially, uh, but probably not, uh, lend some electoral support to the protocol being challenged in 2024 when the, the big consent vote happens. Mm. Um, but, of, so, of course, a more immediate challenge to it, and depending on what way a judgment in the High Court in Belfast goes, does it or doesn't it undermine the, the Act of Union? The current position of the DUP is that it does because Northern Ireland is not, as they see it, free to trade freely uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom a court ruling will at least crystallise in legal terms what the truth of that or otherwise is. Yeah, so so this is a, a case that has been taken by leading unionists, including uh, Arlene Foster uh, and a number of prominent Brexiteers like uh, Kate Hoey, um, Steve Aiken, of course, as well, the, the former Ulster Unionist Party leader. They've taken a legal case to the High Court in Belfast saying that the protocol undermines Article 6 of the Act of Union, which creates a, a trade and customs union between Ireland and, and Britain, uh, and therefore the protocol uh, is contravenes that. Um, and obviously the British government's 
con- legal counsel has argued that, well, ultimately Parliament is sovereign in these decisions and Parliament voted to endorse the withdrawal agreement, including the protocol. So, um, but that has been a very colourful and uh, highly, um, I would say, highly charged court case because of some of the, some of the language that has been used um, against the protocol. One counsel referred to the protocol as being like something the Vichy regime would impose uh, on the rest of France. Um, so we'll see on Wednesday what the judgment will be like. It, it, it may well be referred to the Supreme Court in the UK, but of course... If the DUP or if the unionist um, delegation who took that case won the case, then that would be putting everybody in a very interesting position uh, politically and legally. Right. Just one more thing, I suppose, before we go. You mentioned there the moves that had been made on pharmaceuticals to ensure the continued flow of medicines from uh, the rest of the UK into into Northern Ireland. There was also uh, moves towards agreement on data flows from the European Union into the UK. They were satisfied that the UK's data regime is, I suppose, equivalently robust when it comes to data security. I mean, there are two areas, and maybe this is something we'd pick up on Friday rather than putting you on the spot about it now. There are two areas where equivalence seems to be the way forward in order to get around issues around the flow of pharmaceuticals and data respectively. Is that something that could be banked and the UK argue that the principle of equivalence has been conceded in one arena, so why not the other? When it comes to food, I I should say. Yeah, I mean, I I guess that there's probably a difference between equivalence and adequacy. I mean, uh, an adequacy decision is something that the European Commission will take um, when it comes to data protection uh, and they they will uh, come to a conclusion on whether a third country's data protection rules are adequate to protect the data of EU citizens that would be transferred uh, as part of a, any kind of commercial trade flow or data flow uh, to the UK. There, there was a, a data equivalence, or sorry, a data adequacy element to the EU-Japan free trade agreement, uh, which which took some time to conclude. Um, I mean, I, I would have to say that the it, it has been a controversial issue um, when it comes to protecting EU citizens' data under the GDPR and a country like the UK, because as we know, there have been endless court challenges taken against uh, the EU shipping data over to the United States. We had uh, um, the Privacy Shield uh, and Safe Harbor, two two agreements that were reached between the EU and the US so that uh, data from EU citizens could be transferred to the US. Uh, Of course, Max Schrems, an Austrian privacy activist, uh, complained bitterly that Facebook would be taking this data and they would be sharing it with US security services. And he won that case in the European Court of Justice. Uh, and, you know, time after time, judges in the ECJ have taken quite a hard line on the privacy of EU citizens and that being important. And there were some concerns at uh, at EU level that the UK security services had even more discretion to snoop on citizens and that this would not be a good thing if the data of EU citizens would come under the the tractor beam of uh, the UK security services. But the uh, European Commission announced on Monday of this week that they uh, they had concluded that there there was uh, an adequate level of protection for EU data uh, to be transferred to the UK commercially. Um, that would also cover uh, any law enforcement cooperation between both sides. So this was an important announcement, and you know, a, a, again, a rare example of you know a more <laughs> right. harmonious um, yeah. uh, relationship now starting to take hold, you know, piece by piece. But you know, there there was implicit in the uh, adequacy ruling that this was a. This would be reviewed after four years. There's going to be a sunset clause. Uh, this will not cover immigration data. Right. Um, and, and there will be other safeguards there. But I think it is an important step in trying to normalise relations between both sides. Okay. Well, 
that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne here in Dublin. But before I go, Tony, what's coming up in the, the week ahead for you before you sign off? Well, Colm, yes, indeed. Well, tomorrow, uh, all, tomorrow being Wednesday, uh, all, all of those things happening, the, the EU formally adopting the extension to the grace period. We'll hear from that court case in Belfast. Um, and I'll be off to Slovenia for the launch of the Slovenian presidency. Uh, in Ljubljana. So what happens there is that the European Commission goes en masse to Ljubljana to have a bilateral meeting with the Slovenian government to launch their six-month presidency and uh, explain to people what's going to be on the the agenda. So that's the whole legislative uh, array of things that they're going to be negotiating over the next six months. So with a bit of luck, I'll be talking to you from Ljubljana on Friday in this week's second Brexit Republic podcast. So until then... From me, Tony Connolly, thanks for listening.